In the 1994 epic, Forrest Gump, moviegoers were offered a window into some of the important moments in late 20th century American history. We were all given a chance to witness and observe the rise of Elvis, the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement, the Vietnam War, assassinations of political leaders, and even the founding of a new computer company, a dynasty called Apple. Through the eyes and the ears of Forrest Gump, our narrator and guide who always seemed to be in the right place at the right time. Now, if you're familiar with the movie, you know that Forrest Gump is an open book, unfiltered, direct, and transparent. He is a man without an agenda. He didn't tell us what to think about the Vietnam War or any of the presidents he met. He just shared his experiences. Forrest let us watch and listen in from his point of view without any accompanying disclaimers, interpretations, or assigned meaning. In fact, on the rare occasion when he would offer any conclusions he'd drawn or lessons he'd learned, Forrest possessed a unique ability to sidestep the arguments of history and instead reach for the universal truths, those big transcendent ideas that move small and specific events into the larger contexts of life and love and loss. During the course of the movie, Forrest grieves and laments the loss of three loved ones. First, it's Forrest's best good friend, Benjamin Buford Blue, who was killed in battle during the Vietnam War. Second, it's Forrest's mother, who died of cancer on a Tuesday. And in perhaps the most poignant scene of the movie, Forrest stands alone over the grave of his wife, Jenny, mourning and describing to her the growth and beauty of their son, who he is now raising on his own. It's evident that Forrest is lost, hurting and confused, concerned for the future, painfully searching for solid ground on which to stand. As he struggles, he tearfully speaks these words to Jenny. I don't know if Mama was right or if it's Lieutenant Dan. I don't know if we each have a destiny or if we're all just floating along accidental-like on a breeze. But I think maybe it's both. Maybe both are happening at the same time. In the 2,500 to 3,000-year-old epic written in the books of Samuel, hearers and readers are offered a window into some of the important moments in ancient Israelite history. We're all given a chance to witness and observe the rise of Saul, the beginnings of the Israelite monarchy, the Philistine War, assassinations of political leaders, and even the founding of a new dynasty called David through the eyes and ears of our narrator and guide who always seems to be in the right place at the right time. This narrator, however, is not an open book. Unlike Forrest Gump, this story, the, the story this narrator is telling, is frequently filtered strategically circuitous and often obscure. The books of Samuel have an agenda. Throughout the epic of Samuel, readers and hearers are told exactly what to think. Case in point, the ascension of David to the throne. A lot of people had to die for David to become king. There are numerous murders and assassinations that take place 
to remove every hindrance of David's rise to power. Yet in each killing, the narrator goes to great lengths to make sure the audience knows that David's hands are clean. Each time someone who stands in the way of David's coronation dies, this narrator loudly and fervently establishes not only the innocence of David, but also the guilt of the real killer. In each instance, the blame lands squarely on the shoulders of someone else. In fact, David comes through so many murders and assassinations unscathed and unaccused that historians can't help but suspect his complicity. In the 14 chapters leading up to the opening of 2 Samuel, Saul, the reigning king, is chasing after David and trying to kill him. Saul is so obsessed with destroying David that it tears a rift in his relationship with his son Jonathan. David is on the run, hiding, dodging, trying to survive. He can't rest, and he certainly can't be king as long as Saul is alive. So as 2 Samuel opens and we receive the news that King Saul and his heir to the throne, Jonathan, are dead, what does David do to celebrate the end of his persecution, the end of Saul trying to kill him? He grieves. Can you believe that? And David doesn't just grieve a little bit. He really sells it. The narrator makes sure that the audience knows that David tore his clothes in agony, that he fasted and wept, and that David had the real culprit, the messenger who brought the news of Saul's death, killed. He then writes a lament, mourning the loss of Saul and Jonathan, and orders that that lament be taught to the people. It's kind of strange that even in his grief, David seems to be adjusting quite nicely to acting like a king. He has a messenger killed and orders a lament that testifies to his grief and innocence taught to the people. And friends, this lament, this poem of grief is strange too. It doesn't fit. It describes an alternate reality. This poem lavishly mourns the loss of Saul, a man trying to kill David. The man first Samuel chapter 15 said, God regretted making king. David writes about Saul as though he was the best of all the Israelites. This lament even portrays Saul and Jonathan's relationship as though they were thick as thieves, father and son out there doing righteous battle together for God. That was not the case. They were not thick as thieves. Their relationship was one of violent opposition precisely because of David. Sitting through this lament is like attending a funeral of someone you knew really well and being forced to receive a eulogy that does not describe them or their life at all. Theologian Walter Brueggemann believes this is because death has a way of permitting us to focus on the larger realities, to transcend the details of hurt and affront, which makes sense. If nothing else, we do generally try not to speak ill of the dead, but I still have to wonder if there's something else going on beneath the surface of this lament. It's just so over the top. According to Victor Hamilton, professor emeritus of the Hebrew Bible at Asbury Theological Seminary, this lament and the rise of David as recorded in Samuel's epic present us with a dilemma. He writes, 
Either David has a heart that is genuinely free of malice, or he is a great actor and a liar who knows how to play to the gallery and diplomatically establish a bridge with Saul's supporters. So which is it? Was David genuinely free of malice toward the man who was trying to kill him? Or was he a great actor and a liar? Was David divinely anointed to the throne and this lament serves as proof of his innocence? Or was he in some way responsible for the deaths that allowed him to seize the throne and this lament serves as propaganda and misdirection? Was David a man after God's heart? Or was he a calculating politician pursuing power? Sinner or saint? Let's put a pin in that for a moment. Professor Victor Hamilton points to something else that is unique about this story in 2 Samuel. This story about Saul's death and David's lament begins with the words, Acher Maveh, which is Hebrew for after the death. Hamilton notes that there are three books in the Hebrew Bible that begin with the words, after the death. The book of Joshua begins with the words, Acher Maveh Moshe, after the death of Moses. The book of Judges begins with the words, Acher Maveh Yehoshua, after the death of Joshua. And here, the second book of Samuel begins Acher Maveth Shaul, after the death of Saul. Friends, this is not a coincidence. We are meant to connect these stories. Our Jewish brothers and sisters call this a remez, when the words used in one story point to another story or stories. After the death is a signpost pointing to a larger connected story. As Victor Hamilton indicates, these identical introductions symbolically tie three periods of Israel's history together. Moses, as the symbol of the liberation from slavery in Egypt. Joshua, as a symbol of the deliverance into the promised land. And Saul, as a symbol of the establishment to the Israelite monarchy. After the death of Moses, whose name means drawn out or taken out, who leads the Israelites as they are drawn out of Egypt, taken out of slavery into the wilderness. After the death of Joshua, whose name means God saves or God delivers, who leads the Israelites as they are saved through the wilderness and delivered into the promised land. And after the death of Saul, whose name means prayed for or asked for, who leads the Israelites as king after they repeatedly pray and ask for a king, despite divine warnings that it will not work out the way they hope. These stories are connected. They are interwoven into Israel's transformation, tracing their de development from slavery to wilderness to promised land to monarchy. But that's not the only connection. They're also all stories that have ended Moses is dead. Joshua is dead. Saul is dead. These stories are also connected because they've all come to an end. There has been a death, and the seeming finality of death holds questions. 
These stories, these scriptures, these Israelites are connected by the questions their endings contain. After the death of Moses, when being drawn out of slavery comes to an end, is that the finish line? Or does our journey continue? After the death of Joshua, when our wandering in the wilderness ceases and we are at long last delivered, is that it? Or is there something more? After the death of Saul, when the monarchy we asked for doesn't work out, is our story over? Or does it somehow go on? These interwoven stories have something to say about death. Their connection and continuation necessarily pose the question, is this really the end? Is this death we are facing an ending? Or is it a beginning? Let's put a pin in that for a moment. It's worth noting that the stories of Samuel were edited into their present form roughly 400 years after the reign of King David by yet another generation of Israelites that had experienced death. In fact, from the Assyrian exile in 8th century BCE and continuing through the Babylonian exile into the Persian, Greek, and Roman empires, the Israelites experienced centuries of their political dynasties and military monarchies being wiped out. These people, these descendant Israelites, they too were connected to the stories of Moses and Joshua and Saul. They too had faced an ending and were now confronted by the questions that come after the death. Shared language, shared death, and shared questions invited them into these stories as they sought to move the small and specific events of their lives into the larger contexts of life and love and loss. It's as if there's something more to these stories than just a recording of historical events, as if they carry experiences with which we can all identify, experiences of facing an ending, of coming through a death. These stories do contain the particular, the specific, the historical, Yet they also seem to contain the universal. They also seem to hold a space for those who are lost, hurting, and confused. Those who are concerned for their future, painfully searching for solid ground on which to stand. So which is it? Are these stories specific, or are they something more? Is this about history? or universality. Let's put a pin in that for a moment. In her 2020 book, The Art of Gathering, strategic facilitator and consultant Priya Parker insightfully describes the work of the famed photographer Platten. Now you may not know Platten by name, but you've probably seen his work. He was a staff photographer for the New Yorker magazine and has also provided the cover photography for Time magazine over a number of years. Parker writes, you'd probably recognize a platen if you saw one. His signature style is a photograph taken so close to his subjects that you can see their pores. Platten has photographed both the powerful and those who have challenged power, the famous and the infamous. 
His portfolio includes iconic shots of world leaders, despots, celebrities, cultural icons, and every sitting president since 1976. According to Priya Parker, however, what's more remarkable about Platten than his litany of famous subjects is what he is able to get his subjects to do. Regardless of the context of the photo shoot, whether in his studio, a cramped hotel room, backstage at a university or concert, or at the United Nations, Platten brings a decrepit, falling apart, white, painted crate for his subjects to sit on. Parker writes, it's in the interest of these leaders, many of whom have press secretaries and image consultants to show a face that they want the public to see. It's in Platten's interest to get them to show something else, something real. Sometimes a presidential advance team will see the box and freak out. We can't ask him to sit on that box. Then Platten tells them who else has sat on that box, and they always acquiesce. Platten is displacing his subjects from the context that they're in and is, through this physical object, connecting them to all the other photo shoots and therefore people who have come before them. After years of lugging it around, when the box finally fell apart, he had his assistants remake the new one to look old and weathered like the original. It had become the gritty symbol that temporarily displaced a leader from his throne. Now, I will confess that I find Platten's artistry and methodology fascinating. The common white crate carries an inescapable tension and at least one question. Is the subject of this photograph an important person, someone powerful or famous and worthy of our attention? Or is the subject of this photograph just a person sitting on an old white box like everybody else? I can't help but wonder if the same inescapable tension and question is present in the epic of Samuel. It seems to be a fair statement that the stories of Samuel, and for that matter the entire Bible, are at least in part a series of photographs that allow us to examine the subjects so closely that we can see their pores. Just as it is with Platon, every biblical subject, be they hero, villain, or somewhere in between, is placed on the same common crate for us to behold. Each enslavement, deliverance, and doomed dynasty connected to those that came before and inviting in those that will inevitably follow. Every death faced and lament composed, carrying experiences to which we all relate and questions that we all ask. Story after story holding the power to displace monarchs, any monarch, including you and me from their throne. Are the subjects of Platon's photographs titans and icons, despots and heroes, or are they just women and men sitting on a box? Was David God's anointed, a Messiah, a man after God's heart, or was he a great actor and liar in the pursuit of power? Are these stories simply a recording of historical data? Or do they hold an epic and universal invitation? Are the deaths we face the end? Or are they just a beginning? Do we each have a destiny, or are we all just floating around accidental-like on a breeze?
Maybe some things aren't meant to be pinned down. As a wise rabbi in my life says, the moment you pin a butterfly to the board for examination, it is no longer a butterfly. At the end of Forrest Gump's lament over the grave of his wife, he composes himself and then earnestly tells her, if there's anything you need, I won't be far away. If you're like me, that line gets to you because I know he means it. He's not just saying that. Those aren't just empty words. Forrest is on call, ready to help, to do whatever needs to be done. I submit to you that the lamenting voices of Samuel and Saul and David cry out to us that our God is never far away. That whether we find ourselves enslaved, wandering in the wilderness, or killing to build our own kingdoms, the source of all things is still just as close as our very breath. I submit to you that the dying declaration of these monarchs joins with Moses and Joshua and the history of Israel to declare that we always have a future. To universally remind us that when our own stories begin with the words after the death, God is still with us and death is not the end. Sinner and saint. History and universality. Death and life. Our destiny and our responsibility. May we live like it's both and love like both are happening at the same time.